under your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Woe is us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Jimmy Clark. Welcome on. Welcome on. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Have a great show tonight on a topic I feel a little bit out of my depth, but I'm not one to really buy into identity politics. So, you know, if you are a man, I think you can still speak on issues that women face. I mean, you should show the correct and appropriate deference to people who have actually lived it. So in this case, I am not a parent that I know of. No, I'm not a parent. I'm not a parent at all. But I have become more and more fascinated with the topic of kids and raising kids because, well, I'm getting older. I'm now 30 years old. A lot of my friends have children. Um... When you're out in the dating world at this age, you're especially in Montgomery, you're bound to meet people who are single parents. Uh, so the topic just started to fascinate me because it's right in front of my face. I, again, I'm not a father yet, uh, but I think back to how my father raised me, how my grandparents helped. Uh, there, there's so many things to this. Well, I could talk about my mother all day long. It, it's made me think about, oh, wow, what were they going through? So I, I think it becomes even deeper uh, when you're actually a parent. And we have a, a father right here in front of us. And he's not a priest. He's a doctor. He's a professor. He's the Adam, let's see if I can get this right, Adams Bibby Chair of Free Enterprise and Associate Professor of Economics at the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Stephen Miller, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, Joey. Thanks. So, am I allowed to talk about parenting in this article you've written, even though I'm not a parent myself? I think absolutely so. Um, it's kind of funny, because when the article first came out, uh, there were some early comments. So it's not obvious from the article. It's obvious I have children. It's not obvious how many children I have and what ages right. they are. And so, I got some early criticism. Well, it sounds like he has, you know, a seven-year-old child or another young child. He's... You know, what does this guy know? Us, you know, us experienced parents laugh at this kind of stuff. And it's like, well, I actually have six kids ages three to 14. So I've, I've been doing this parenting thing for a while, and I've been doing it a lot. Yeah, six <laughs> children, that's an interesting thing. And it's called, Oh, the Places They'll Go If You Let Go. Right. That's the name of the article published in Reason Magazine. Can it be found on Reason.com? Uh, if you find it on Reason.com, what it does is if you go to the, the current issue... So this is 
actually not the current issue, it's the June issue, but you know, they're like a month ahead. Right. But it's the newest issue, the June issue. That may set you up in front of a paywall and try to get you to subscribe. And I recommend you subscribe to Reason Magazine, but I don't mind telling you there are other ways to get the article. Uh, if you're willing to go to Reason's Facebook page and scroll down a bit, they posted an ungated version because it was generating some good traffic for Wonderful. Them. Uh, so there's a couple of ways to find it. I, I, as I like to say, you can even find it. The Montgomery Public Libraries carry Reason Magazine. <laughs> so you can even, if you're a real cheapskate and really want to read the, the physical print version, you can do that, too. You know, there's something a little bit lost not holding physical copies of these publications yeah. anymore. So, And, you know, it's good to hear that the library's still around. Yeah. Uh, it is a testament. Not everybody, even in this day and age, even in 2019, has access to the Internet and access to subscription-based stuff, So, especially for kids. I love the idea of a kid walking into the library and going, what's the reason this thing? Yeah. And then stumbling onto your article or a young parent. Uh, that would be great. So it's interesting that the criticism of you, and I love how people do this, is like, you don't have the experience. <laughs> I disagree with your ideas, not because of your ideas, but who you are. Right. right? We got to stop with that crap, whether it's explicitly identity politics or anything else. Um, but let's give folks, you were on earlier this week on these airwaves mm-hmm. uh, with Barron, and I love the interview. I was listening in. So I, I kind of wanted to come at it from my perspective, but for folks who don't know the long and short of this article, the the places, oh, the places they'll go if you let go, what's, what's the, the elevator pitch of this? So the elevator pitch is that if you look at typical parents in the United States, you know, not parents at the at the extreme end of neglect or abuse, and probably not parents who are parents of super high-achieving kids who eventually become professional athletes or professional musicians, right? right? But most of the parents in the middle, uh, a lot of them stress themselves out a lot. And they, they, they spend a lot of time and effort and a lot of worry trying to figure out how to make their kids' lives better. And what the article is really saying is, Relax, <laughs> and there are a lot of reasons you should relax. There's, a, you know, there's been a, there've been a lot of studies on kids and how they're raised, and there's just not a huge difference in terms of a kid's outcome whether you have them in that fourth or fifth activity. There's not a huge difference in kids' outcome whether you have organized play dates for them or if you just kind of let them go out and find their own friends. So there's a lot of really interesting evidence that I bring up uh, in the article. Some of it is from twin and adoption studies, which is really cool, hmm. and r- really I relied on my friend Brian Kaplan for that. He wrote a book called Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, but the early part of his book was a version of the argument I make in this article, which is relax. The the cost of having kids in a modern developed country like the United States doesn't have to be as high as parents are making it. And what kids care about most, what really matters for kids when they remember their childhood, is big thing they remember is how stressed their parents were and how upset their parents were like their fond memories come from their parents enjoying things with them right and so the key is the time you spend with your kids you know the way you parent you want your kids to have good memories of that right right and you need to relax and i almost feel like there is People that parenting has to be one of the scariest things ever when you first start. Now you're on child number six. Um, one angle to this: why maybe parents feel like it's it is an awesome responsibility, but 
they almost take it too far. And I don't want to get into the the world of like trying to live vicariously through your kids. Like you're going to be that football player right. that I never was. I'm not talking about that. It's more just somebody who is well intentioned. Mm-hmm. They want their kids to have the best in the world. Who doesn't? And yet they go a little too, they do too much. And as you just pointed out, it costs too much or it costs a lot. But here's one angle I want to come at it with. I believe I heard this from the psychologist Jonathan Haidt. Mm -hmm. Uh, He was talking about how because families, you're the exception to this, are having only maybe one or two children. It's almost weird to talk about it this way, but they're so precious. They're almost more valuable because you don't have as many like it's especially if it's an only child. It's like you're the little prince or princess. You're going to be the conqueror, the mother of dragons. You you're going to have everything in the world, and I'm never going to have another kid like you. Do you think that plays into the heavy-handedness sometimes? I I think I think these I think two things are going on at the same time. Okay. I think I think that is going on. I think that definitely when parents have fewer children, and families are definitely smaller now in the U.S. than they were 50 years ago. They're not that much smaller than they were 20 or 30 years ago, though, right? So when you were a kid, it's not a huge difference, is it? No, not, right? not too much. Uh, from when, when I was a little kid, it's a, it's, it's a pretty big difference. I grew up in a neighborhood in, in St. Louis, Missouri, where I was one of five, and that was not weird. There, there were a lot of families with four to eight, and then hmm. the big families had 11 or 12 kids, but it was a Catholic neighborhood in the city in, in St. Louis. Even as I was growing up, that became less and less common. Yeah, I have one brother. Most of the people I know would have, they were only, like my good friends, are only child. Yeah. Two of them are, were only children. Or that, yeah, it's either one, two, three at the most, and then you'd have families like yourself or Baron, where it's like, you're good Catholics. Right. Very well done. <laughs> Be fruitful and multiply. So, but I bet your childhood was a little looser, a little more relaxed, and a little less structured than a lot of kids' childhoods and lives are today. Yes. Yes, I would say absolutely. I still remember, I'm only 30, folks, but I still remember uh, being allowed to go out into the neighborhood with my young friends and just explore and play and get into a little bit of trouble. It's like, oh, he's got the new Resident Evil video game. Mom wouldn't let me watch this. I'm breaking the rules. Or playing basketball, riding bikes. I mean, Building forts with you know sticks, or literally George Carlin has a bit about this. Whatever happened to a kid with a stick, right? Just <laughs> digging a hole, like we would do that, and you just use your imagination. And so, yeah, now it does seem foreign to me. Well, and without an adult around, yeah, exactly. Right, and you had the time to do it. It's not like you got home from school, and then you had soccer, and then you had dinner, and then you had. I don't know, dance, and then you had homework, right? I mean, right. It, it wasn't it wasn't the sequence of things where you had a play date set up for Saturday and Wednesday, right? I mean, it wasn't so structured. You had the time to explore, and often you got to explore, you got to do things with other kids where adults weren't around. And so when I said it also can go the other way, one thing I'm thinking of is for some reason, for a variety of reasons, Lenore Skenazy gets at this, and she has a short article in, in the same issue of Reason, uh, for some reason, though, the the pressure parents have to always be supervising their kids, make sure that everything their kids do is supervised, and make sure that ch- children are always supervised. You don't just let them go out and ride their bikes around the neighborhood. You don't just let them go to the park. That raises the cost of having more kids. So there's a bit of a feedback loop there where I think because it feels like, not just in terms of the financial cost, but in terms of all the, the human costs, the opportunity costs, 
people don't have as many children as they otherwise might. Right. Even right. if they're very well able to afford it financially, the, you know, the stress and the work and everything that goes along with having more kids, I think that also deters people a little bit. And this is a pretty common, it's not just the United States, this is pretty common across all so-called developed nations, yeah, as, less as, children. As, as nations get richer, this is what we see, smaller it's, families. It's so counterintuitive, it's so bizarre in the sense that you would expect now we have more wealth, we're more productive with less hours in the day. Let's have more kids. Right. But it's going the opposite direction. Uh, I, I find that odd. But you make your central claim is that relax. Mm-hmm. You don't have to do all these things right. for your children. So what is, looking at the, the data, the facts, what is the most determinate factor for the child's future? Well, the big one is genetics. Oh, no. <laughs> so I like to say... You do have a big influence on your child and your child's future, but most of that impact, most of that influence you have on your child's future ends about 40 weeks, about nine months before the child's born. Hmm. But your big impact is in conception, creating the child in the first place, right? Where you're passing on a lot of the genetic material. Uh, after genetics, though, the big thing is peers. Okay. And so... There, there is some interesting research, and there's an interesting debate to have over, well, then how much can a parent influence their kid's peers? Sure. And the answer is it's tricky, right? Because then as the child ages, the older a child gets, the more that child is able to choose his or her own peers. Well, and you have to be careful with that, too, in the sense that if you try to say, don't hang out with those people, there's that rebellious streak of, right. I'm going to hang out with them. I'm a free human being. Yeah, and rebellion comes up uh, in a couple of places in the article. One interesting thing is uh, that... Children of parents who smoke are a little more likely not to smoke than otherwise. Interesting. Like it's a rebellion. Now, does that mean as a parent you should start smoking too <laughs> to get your child to rebel? I don't. I don't really think so. But it's a. It's a funny. It, it's a funny thing. Rebellion is that there are certain behaviors that parents take on that children then rebel against. So, but you, coming back to the genetics factor. You know, for the longest time, I held this idea. I accepted this idea. I didn't come up with it. Uh, the tabula la rasa, uh, what is it? The tabula blank, rasa. Yeah, the blank slate. Yeah. I'm, I should never try Latin. I'm just terrible with it. Even though I went to Catholic school, I suck at Latin. <laughs> but the blank slate idea, like the, the noble savage mm-hmm. idea that goes back to Rousseau, that man is essentially, you know, free and good and all this stuff. And. I, I'm more one, now that I've really thought about it, a Thomas Sowell's constrained view of human nature, mm-hmm. that we're incredibly limited and flawed. Now, I don't think children are just little, you know, devils either. I think they're, they're plenty prone to make correct decisions, good, compassionate, wonderful decisions. Uh, but do you think playing into it, it's like, okay, if the kid's just a blank slate, then I as the parent am like this gatekeeper to all of society. And in a way, sometimes when I talk mm-hmm. to parents... It's, you know, I've met all different types of parents. Some are just like, well, whatever, man. Like, yeah, you can talk to the kid. Don't say anything inappropriate. But, like, but then some parents are so protective. It's like, don't you dare say anything that would go against, you know, what I'm teaching the kid or whatnot. Right. Even if it's just, you know, a happenstance, normal conversation. Uh, it's almost like because a kid is a blank slate, we have to be careful what that blank slate gets put on it. In a weird way. Whereas you're saying the genetic factor really does play into, you know, different temperaments, aptitude, and whatnot. Right. 
So, I mean, whether we're talking about uh, scholastic achievement, whether we're talking about future income, uh, whether we're talking about future health, genetics dominates anything you can measure in terms of how kids are raised. And the way these are usually measured, and the way these have usually been studied over over centuries in some cases, uh, have been with twin and adoption studies. So you either compare identical twins to fraternal twins. Hmm. And so, because identical twins share 100% of their genes and are raised in the same household, but fraternal twins share 50%, about 50% of their genes, and they're raised in the same household, there are big systematic differences between, or between how the identical twins look versus fraternal twins. In other words, identical twins end up, and you've probably, everybody's probably seen TV specials on this. It's crazy how identical twins end up so, similar in so many ways and there are really funny tv shows about identical twins you know separated at birth raised in different households and you know not only do they both look the same they're both firefighters they both you know (laughs) right right (laughs) they have similar looking homes they drive a similar car i mean it's it's pretty crazy now i'm not claiming really that genetics is that powerful i'm simply saying that if you had to pick you know in terms of how powerful these things are that is the most powerful thing it is more powerful within the range of normal well and then the that's the the key within the range of normal exactly if you if you you do something terrible and you shut a kid in a closet or you truly you don't ever let them go outside or or you're constantly verbally abusing a child right, right that is definitely going to have a horrible impact on the child well it's the classic nature versus nurture argument it's obviously both right uh and well and you said the first factor is genetics the most determinative factor but the second is peers peers and that makes a lot of sense because they really are on an equal playing field and it's not it's a brilliant thing I heard the other day where if you give a kid, a young kid, a lecture, they might hear it, but it's going to take forever for that sort of lecture and that abstract sense to sink in. Uh, but a kid can learn a lot, and I remember learning a lot. Most of the lessons I carry with me were done when I'm you know, engaging in some game or mm-hmm. some adventure with my friends or just some experience, some opportunity that you know, through the process of playing – I learned the rules or I learned something about yeah. myself or the world. It wasn't explicit like, these are the rules, Joey. It was more like, well, you experienced that. That's how that felt. So don't do that again or do that again. Yeah. And it's often, it's it's little things that your peers say. When someone is, when someone, you review someone as a peer, when they're on your level, it's just, it, for whatever reason, the communication, the influence we have on each other, it, it's more relatable. Mm. It's more relatable. And there's nothing apparent... Or, you know, I'm a college professor, right? I, I, can, I can try and be relatable to 19-year-olds in a classroom, <laughs> right? But I'm nowhere near as relatable to them as they are to each other. Exactly. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Now, you're pointing out, the back to the main thrust of this article, the tragic irony of parents that, out of an abundance of care and wanting their kid to have the mm-hmm. best possible and the most opportunities as possible, they might, the tragedy is put memories or experiences in that kid's life that what you remember and unfortunately in some ways I remember this about my mom may she rest in peace is every time we would have like a big trip whether we're going to the beach Mm -hmm. or going on a camping trip what I remember is not all of the wonderful memories of going camping and fishing and hiking or whatever I remember her being so stressed out before every trip, because everything's got to be exactly right, and is the itinerary correct? Do we have, and she—that's just her. And I look at it now and kind of smile because yeah. I'm that way. But 
I, that's unfortunately part of the memory is like her stress all the time. And I, it's almost like, hey, mom, you should have just relaxed. And let's have some fun. Well, and that's and that's but that's what's so counterintuitive and so hard for modern parents to do, right? Because that's what we do. We say, well, we want to create this perfect memory. We want to create this great childhood, and we end up stressing ourselves out to the point to where what the child remembers really is our mood, right? Right, and. If we had done something less intense, less perfect, more spur of the moment, less fancy, you know, go stay at a motel in Birmingham. That doesn't sound very fancy, does it, Joey? No. But man, if, if you were relaxed and it was a spur of the moment thing, there's a good chance kids would remember it, especially if the hotel has a pool. Right. Right? Right. <laughs> and maybe eat pizza in the room. Well, I always loved pizza night or like it's just a random Saturday morning. My dad would come in and go, get up. I'm like, I don't want to. Do you want some donuts? Yeah. yeah. I'm wide awake. <laughs> like we're going, baby. Yeah. And there are sometimes you do plan things. There are great moments. I remember, I will remember to the day I die, going to see the... Uh, NLCS in 1995, going to see the Atlanta Braves and Clusco with That's all the awesome. sunflower seeds in the outfield. So you can have the, I imagine, those planned trips and big moments. But you, also, the things that stick with you, you aren't always explicit. Like, I, I don't want to be uh, too depressing here, but what I said in my eulogy for my mother is that there's so much about me that I, I know I don't know that she instilled in me. Uh-huh. So it is a, it's more of a model without it being this explicit thing that can be planned. And your argument to me when I read it, and I know this is like a, I don't want it to be a humble brag, but it does seem to come from a place of uh, humility or that we're ignorant of all these different factors and how to apply it in the moment for a kid. It, it's You got to avoid the fatal conceit. Right. I think that's exactly right. That, no, that's exactly what I was trying to say. I'm, I'm glad that resonated with you it in did. that way. Uh, which brings me back to, you know, what you opened with, you know, can you have a view? Well, I think your perspective as, as, as a grown man who was a child, who was a little boy, and your memories of your childhood, I think that's very salient and very important. Yes. I mean, what are we talking about here? We're talking about something very important. It's how you remember your mother. Yeah. Yeah, that's very important. And, you know, I, I remember all sorts of things. Well, in, in many ways, I remember... Uh, a scolding voice in a good way. It not. It wasn't ever unnecessary. It's like stuff when I get lazy. Right. I, as I've started to take a little more responsibility for my own life, I'm like, she'd be happy that I'm actually doing my laundry. She would be happy that I'm actually preparing healthy food for myself and I'm working out. Right. She used to. She didn't hound me when I was a kid about that, but I remember her hounding my dad about that. Yeah. I'm like, why don't you eat a salad? Stop eating that burger. And you know, it's stuff like that where you're. Uh, you're like, okay, in the moment, it doesn't necessarily resonate as some big life lesson, but it's the memory that continues to develop over time with these these different factors. It's, I don't know, it's a humbling experience, I'd imagine, being a parent. Very humbling. I yeah. mean, is it different for you the more kids you had? Like, was child number one very different, like your approach and the way you thought about it as to two, three, four, five, six? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. So with child number one, and I bet, I bet we weren't that in, unusual, but uh, my wife and I, we read all kinds of books. Not just the how to expect what you're expecting, what uh, whatever it's called, how to expect when you're expect or what to expect when you're expecting. Yes. I couldn't get the title for a moment. Uh, not just that. She read that. As a matter of fact, I didn't read that book. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but I read numerous books on parenting young children and and, and 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 like what is the right way to deal with children, what's the right way to potty train a child, what's the right way to get a baby to calm down. I read so much about that and perhaps I'm exaggerating. But I just don't think it prepared me for the moment very well at all. Mm. What happened in the moment is I'm trying to do all of these things and I'm trying to do them the right way instead of just relaxing and trusting my intuition. So, right, I don't right. relax. And you know what? I Maybe I'm wrong, but I swear the baby can pick up on that, right? That you're, that so. you're tense, right? And then yep. they're tense. You know, and it's the same thing with little kids. And don't get me wrong. If you have kids running around, if you have toddlers or if you have teenagers you're going to be tense you're going to be stressed right I don't, i'm not saying there's a way out of the stress sure but it's don't add extra stress for yourself right, right? don't over plan don't over prepare things are going to move on you right the ground is going to shift underneath your feet and it's better to just be flexible and be ready for it well and it's good to instill a, a sort of basic structure provision and basic security right without like you said going overboard and no it wasn't until i was in high school where my schedule really started to feel crazy mm-hmm. but that had nothing really to do with my parents it was more i wanted i want to take piano lessons right. and dual enrollment and faulkner and i also want to play football and i also want to stars jesus and godspell and i want to read all these extra books that i actually find interesting other than the ones assigned and like it, it but it was me yeah. starting my own life it didn't have anything to do with my mom or dad saying you must do this you must be this way uh, which I guess is to my benefit. No, that sounds like your journey. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess it started a little early for you. I didn't. I wasn't super curious about things until I was in college. Well, I also, I have to admit, in senior year in high school, I just stopped caring about school. But I saw it as my obligation to jump through the hoops right. of going to college, getting a degree. And I, I didn't realize it until well, I'm still realizing it. I'm trying to actualize it, embody it. But I didn't realize until way after college, maybe a year or two, once I'm here in the radio, that I need to create my own hoops and jump through them. Right. Stop sort of trying to please people. And it wasn't really, I never felt the pressure from my parents. I felt the pressure from, well, this is what you're supposed to do. And then things will work out. I was like, no. I mean, life's fine, life's good, but it could be better. And it's a that self-initiative. Right. And it, it does remind me of being a kid. Like, you, I miss those moments of, okay, we're in after-school care. There's no official school structure or curriculum. You're just hanging out with your buddy. In this case, it was Jason I would hang out with. I think he's like a rock climber. Like, right. he scales mountainsides and incredible stuff. Free climber. Now, uh, I need to check in on them. But we used to just use our imagination. There was the epic war against the ants. There's this ant infestation this tree, and we just went to war with those suckers. Water didn't seem to work. No. Elman's glue, I don't think, was very healthy for the tree. Um, but then you use your imagination. It's like, okay, we're going to get a bunch of sticks and like you know pine needles stuff together. We're going to build a fort and... Yeah, you know, we would just use our imagination and create like epics and different adventures we could go on. And I, at times, now as a thirty-year-old man, wish where is that imagination? Where is that energy and that initiative to just hey, here's some sticks. Right. Let's go have some fun. And now it's like, ah, oh, now I need my caffeine. Now I need to wake up and meditate in the morning. I got to read and I got to do my exercise. And then I got to, you know, read all the more of the news and more of the news and more of the news until I get all worked up. And I, I think there's something about childhood that 
we shouldn't, whether you're a parent or you're a young person trying to feel that spark, hell, you could be 60-something wanting to remember that spark, is you can't, uh, it, you just got to let it happen. You got to have, again, that humility to say, I don't know exactly where I'm going, but I'm going to put my best foot forward and enjoy the moment and stop and smell the roses. Uh, I love this approach. Um, it reminds me of a few things, though. We got to hit a break here. It reminds me of one chapter in Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. It's probably his most provocative title of a chapter, his most provocative rule. Um, but it also. I, it reminds me of something you said actually during Barron's interview with you. Mm-hmm. Is this necessarily Reason Magazine is a libertarian publication? Right, very clear. But is this necessarily a libertarian approach? I, I don't want to answer that now, but uh, I'd want to get into that because to me it seems kind of like a common sense approach that people may disagree with to certain degrees, but. It's just, this is how people who think about parenting might talk about it. Right. It might have a certain approach. So uh, I, I want to get into that. And it, it's a nice segue into what exactly is libertarianism? Because I think that a lot of the uh, culture, it, it had its moment for a little while there, like 2013 with Snowden and yeah. Rand Paul and Ron Paul ushered in a lot. But I think sometimes people hear that word and they're like, well, what exactly is libertarian? Um, it's a good topic we could get into. But uh, before we hit the break, I'm tell folks, maybe you are starting a family. You're about to be a new parent. You realize, I don't want to raise a kid in this shabby apartment. But do I make enough money? I don't, I, I don't know. Like, what, am, what are my options? Well, stop sitting there wallowing and whining. Give Eddie Bader with the Goodson Group a call. He's a fantastic guy, down-to-earth guy. I'm going to be hanging out with him on Saturday at a Taco Libre. But what I really love about Eddie is his expertise in the real estate market. If you do want to get out of that apartment, have a great place, maybe a backyard, maybe even a pool, somewhere that the kids can run and play and have some fun in a good neighborhood, Eddie Bader can find that house for you. And if you're a first-time buyer, he can walk through walk you through a lot of the steps, a lot of the things you may not know because it is your first time. Or if you're looking to sell your place, I know we have a lot of military families here in the area. Uh, need to get the place off the market quick. Eddie knows the renovations, the repairs, how to pull off a successful open house. And he's a very proactive real estate agent. He's not just getting you to sign a contract, hammer a sign in their front yard and wait by the phone. No, he's getting out there connecting buyers and sellers. So if you are looking to buy or sell your home here in the River Region, give Eddie Bader with the Goods and Group a call. His number is 322-0662. Again, that number for Eddie Bader with the Goods and Group, 322-0662. If you can't tell, Steve, uh, and again, we're talking to Stephen Miller. He is the Adams Bibby Chair of Free Enterprise and Associate Professor of Economics at the Manuel H. Johnson Center of Political Economy at Troy University. And you're like a noble with that title. I like it. Uh, we're talking about raising kids, a certain, you know, it's not completely hands-off, but it's, in a word, relax. Right. Uh, you are not necessarily everything to the kid. Well, it's so tricky, the language, when you're talking about parenting, uh, that there are other factors, let's say, in a child's life, whether it's genetics or peers, that go beyond exactly what you do as a parent. You don't have to schedule every aspect of their lives. Uh, I love the idea. I love this topic, too, because I am getting older. And who knows? Maybe in a a couple years, maybe even sooner than that, 
I have a kid of my own, and I'll be facing it firsthand. So we'll continue this conversation on the other side of this break. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Stay tuned. Joey Clark. Clark. Oh, welcome back. You're listening to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. In the studio, we have Dr. Stephen Miller. He's a professor of economics. Keep it short. Troy University here. Um, there's a longer title, but we've given it out twice now. And I'm uh, I'm tired. Mm-hmm. I didn't get enough sleep last night, so I'm over-caffeinated to compensate. So if I sound a, a bit manic, folks, that's the reason why. Just being honest. But I'm enjoying our discussion, Stephen. Um, now, I want to get into this idea that, because it's in a libertarian publication, there is, there are ideas I, as a fellow libertarian, can see, like, I, that's why I picked up on right. the humility aspect of it. Um, but would you say this is, like, explicitly a libertarian approach? Like, because I've seen that sort of stuff out there. This is a, a good kid's book. If you're a libertarian, you want to show your kids the ideas. You know, and I'm not, like, stuff like the Tuttle Twins. Great stuff. Right. But would you say this is explicitly a libertarian approach to parenting? Not, not specifically libertarian, right? So, right. I I was hoping for a broader audience than that, and I think the editors of Reason were hoping it would reach more people than just people with libertarian sympathies. They're looking to, you know, reach more readers, reach more people. So it's not just a libertarian guide to parenting. Um, it definitely is an economic guide, right? Because yes. it, right, there's a lot of economic reasoning that runs throughout the piece. Uh, and looking at things in terms of marginal cost and marginal benefit, especially. So that's definitely running through. Now, in a sense, though, the approach I'm advocating is libertarian because it all centers around children and their agency and letting children make some of the choices in their life and a little less pressure from the parents but also a little libertarian in the sense that getting away from a centrally planned childhood mm, yes that makes sense that makes a lot of sense yeah it, it seems like there are some people that it's it's almost like there's not a correct way really like we know the bad things like don't like we went over don't verbally abuse your kids obviously you know, don't hit your children. They'll be incredibly violent. Uh, be attentive. I mean, you don't... Don't feed them only Twinkies. Right. Right. There are some basic things. And, I mean, one thing, it's kind of almost like a another... Like, your approach along with this rejoinder. Like, mm-hmm. uh, it reminded me of Rule 5. And this is Jordan Peterson's 12 Rules for Life. You said you haven't read this yet. I have not. Uh, this is a fascinating chapter. It's probably one of the most provocative rules just by the title. Rule five, do not let your children do anything that makes you dislike them. And what he's getting at uh, is like he remembers he's going through an airport and this kid, this little toddler, is just screaming his head off. And as a trained psychologist, Peterson could see this kid's not like in sorrow or sad or hurt. It's attention getting. It's anger. And the poor parents had never really figured out a way to tell this kid no. They didn't have any way to stop him. And his point is, you need to, at some point, have a certain amount of discipline 
and if necessary, punishment. Now, we can get creative with those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Um, would you find yourself in disagreement with anything like that? Um, not really, no. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know Jordan Peterson's philosophy of parenting. I, right. right. I mean, that, that rule is an interesting rule about not letting your kids do anything that would make you dislike them. I definitely believe that kids need boundaries. That's that's actually probably the main role of a parent, of young children especially, is setting those boundaries and making them very clear. And yes, there has to be punishment. Now, you said get creative. One of my favorite creative punishments mm. is... so. It gets easier as kids get a little older because by, oh, I don't know, age four or five nowadays, kids love to have access either to your phone or tablet or, or computer <laughs> sure. or, or TV or whatever. That was a threat right? in my They household. love to have access to your device or they have their own device. Many <laughs> right. of my kids already have their own tablet or my older two kids have their own uh, smartphones, right? And so I think the great way to handle that punishment, right, is so now there's something at stake. There's something you can take away. Don't take away the device, though. Take away the charger, and then you can watch the hope die on their faces. <laughs> That's hilarious. You watch your kid just slowly realize, right. oh, no, this is going to die, and it, it's all my fault, actually. Because at, at first, they're like, big deal, you take the charger, and then they just keep, right? They keep using the iPad or whatever. <laughs> Make them realize slowly. <laughs> Hour and a half later. I think, though, in this chapter, I think you could appreciate this. One of the best best examples he gives is a client of his who uh, mm-hmm. he was giving therapy to and this guy kept talking about how every night every night it's like a 45 minute battle for getting my kid to go to sleep mm-hmm. and it's a battle which i mean early on really early on imagine that's just the nature of the beast uh, but he kind of went into with this guy okay so you're doing this every night yes how long 45 minutes okay so that's how many hours a week that's how however long and they came up with a figure that essentially you're arguing over a year you're arguing with your young son for essentially a month right what does that got to do for you and for him like if y'all's y'all have this relationship where a month of it is just this contentious struggle like and it, I think plays into your point of like okay you got to figure out a way to like obviously the kids got to go to sleep and that's the the very difficult thing the devil's always in the details how do you make this work with a particular child but you can't just let the the stress build especially when you you know look at it over time that that is it's not it doesn't seem explicit because it's happening only for half an hour each night but when you put it all together in aggregate that is definitely got to have an effect, like the the stress and the right. fight, all the time. Uh, definitely, definitely. Uh, now the truth is, I don't have an answer. Right. Well, I've I've, and I've been through a lot of toddlers. I don't have an answer to keep a toddler from being a toddler. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Fair right. Enough. There's a certain age, and they all go through phases where that's the whole point. Their way of testing you is to make something an extended fight. Now, if that's going on for many months, if it's going on for years, then something is then it then it then it probably really would build up. Um, you know, you know the answer sometimes is to get creative. But I I, right. I see the overall point there. Uh, 
just certainly to, in terms of my own advice, right? Mm. The point is not to have that fight with your five-year-old or your ten-year-old. If they hate karate or they don't want to go to gymnastics, right? If they don't enjoy it, and then you find that it's a lot of stress for you and you don't enjoy it, that's the first kind of thing that you want to cut out, right? Make life a little bit easier and a little bit lower key and a little bit less planned yes. for you and the child. That it benefits both of you, right, in many of these cases. Do you think this this idea could be a, <clears throat> applied? I mean, you are a teacher at the end of the day, along with being a parent. Do you worry sometimes there's too much uh, structure in school? Like, it's kind of, that's where a lot of the peers meet. And, like, I, I gave you that example earlier. Yeah. A fond memory was after school, where we didn't have any structure. And right. me and my friends could just play and come up with whatever we could imagine. Whereas in school, I do remember, oh, bell rings, go to this room, bell rings, right. go to that room. Do you think this theory could be applied somewhat to any sort of learning environment? I think so. I mean, I... Now, it would be tough to do because the way public school curricula are set up, and not just public school curricula, but all the, all the, all the requirements of what has to be in the curriculum, uh, that makes it pretty tight. And it's also you're just dealing with a lot of kids with very different needs, very different personalities, and the easy thing to do is to standardize. It's, it's funny you bring this up because in my graduate class this past semester, uh, we've been reading John Dewey's Democracy and Education. Yeah. And, and John Dewey has a very... Uh, John Dewey is arguably the parent of the modern U.S. public education system the way it is with a standardized curriculum and all of these goals and the idea is to form children into good citizens sure. through education. And in the book, in that book, he's so – it was written in 1917, I think. He, or 1913, maybe? 1913. Uh, he's so optimistic right and, and he, he i mean he paints this beautiful picture of all the great things that education could do in terms of really improving a society right but when the where the rubber hits the road right <laughs> to make that even sort of work there has to be a whole lot of rigid structure yes. and a whole lot of defined roles for everybody the kids included so it's a really interesting dynamic and one thing i noticed because i teach in college is how kids who've had that structure their whole life, you know, preschool or pre-kindergarten through 12th grade. Yeah. When they first arrive on a college campus, it's a little freaky for them because now no one is making sure that they are in the hallway at the right time, going to the right class at the right time. Right. No one is, right? There, There is no real structure time set aside for them to do work. In none of the classes, I shouldn't say that, maybe in some classes, but in the vast majority of college classes, you're not actually going and working through the problems and doing work in the classroom. No, no. The classroom is where you're exposed to the material. Right. Me, right. Here's the problem. You're, go figure right. it out. You're exposed to the material, and then you have to be able to figure out how you're going to then learn it, internalize it. And be able and be able to work through new situations with that knowledge you've been exposed to. So, college is relatively unstructured. Yes, and I, I don't know if that was your experience going from uh, high school somewhat, to college. Somewhat, somewhat. I like I said earlier, I stopped really caring. I was jumping through other people's hoops or so right. I thought in my mind. So. I mean, there's some classes. I well, I was very frustrated with Auburn, and it's not really a knock against Auburn. It's just generally how uh, the university system works. It's like I went through all this stuff. Why am I having to take these like beginning classes again on all the different subjects to make me a well-rounded citizen? 
I thought when I got to college, I get to study the stuff I want to study right. and I'm passionate about. Why? I don't want to take statistics. Why? Like, that's not going to be my approach. Um, but you had to do this. And that sort of thing yeah. frustrated me. And then, yeah, filling the free time and making it productive, I think I've, I failed that many cases. I just went and, and relaxed in a way. Uh, there's an interesting chapter on uh, liberal studies or general education requirements in colleges in a new book by Jason Brennan and Phil Magnus. It's yeah. called Cracks in the Ivory Tower. I don't remember the name of the chapter, but the chapter is about general education requirements in college, and they're very harshly critical of it because that is the one part of college that is that is a structure imposed on every student, right? It's very frustrating. Of course, the curriculum for nursing students or accounting students is very mapped out, but the point is students are choosing what path they take. Yes. Except for this weird thing that goes on in colleges, which is that general education or sometimes called liberal studies requirements, right? But it's a set of common courses that basically everyone has to take. Sometimes it's categories, but often there's there's a specific map that you have to take in terms of communication and composition mm -hmm. and algebra, right? And it's like everybody has to take I think courses. I AP'd, I escaped history, mm -hmm. AP'd out of history. Um, but most everything else I had to take. And even my English teacher I was speaking fondly of earlier today on these airwaves, Marvin Petrucci, he was kind of like, why are you in here? Like, you can write. You're fine. Yeah. I was like, I don't know. Well, I guess they didn't like my essay on the AP test or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a weird dynamic where you have to meet. And this is, I mean, isn't this a lesson to life in general? That, that golden mean, that balance. Because I think if you have too much free reign, too much chaos then it can easily snap back into too much order. Right. Whereas if you have too much order, and it's too top-down, too centrally planned, this is what we're going to do, it can snap back to chaos. The two sort of you know, go together pretty well. Whereas you can find that nice golden mean, right. that Goldilocks zone, uh, that's where, well, it's golden, to use the word again. Uh, that if, and, I mean, do you struggle with this? You wrote this article. Do you ever find yourself saying... Mm, should I should I push my particular kid there or should I back Absolutely. off all yeah. the time? Yeah, all the time, uh, and and maybe a little tougher for my wife. Uh, you know, she's she's come back to this thing. She just asked my daughter today or yesterday. Uh, one of them, I, it's not my youngest daughter, it's not my oldest daughter, the middle daughter. I have three boys and three girls, so it's that's <laughs> <laughs> a lot. But we have we have a daughter who was doing gymnastics, and we asked her if she wanted to do softball, and she she wasn't seeming very interested in gymnastics. She's really really good at it, but she wasn't seeming super interested. And she was interested in doing softball because her brother plays baseball, and she liked being at the fields and everything. So we let her do that. We pulled her out, and. It's about to end. I think the last game is Tuesday. And so mm -hmm. we asked her, hey, do you want to go back to gymnastics? And she's like, no. And my poor wife, I mean, I am too, but my wife especially, you know, the thought is, oh, but she's so good. Right. But, but is our child going to make the U.S. Olympic team or anything like that? No. Right. This is just, right? You and I, we have this intuition that, oh, my gosh, if our child could do something well, right? Or if we just see anyone who could do something well, we want to push them to do it. Right. But that may not be what drives them what's what they're really interested in yeah and you can go too far like i've known people who are brilliant at playing piano but they hate it it was forced on them and so some of the love for it isn't there and that may be more sad like maybe really if they just been a more 
had a more casual exposure to piano. It just would be something fun that they do. Or at least some more freedom in the process of right. learning it as opposed to this is your lesson, you must right. do the lesson. Um, it, it's very difficult, and I, I don't know. What you wrote reminds me of something I've been going on for the last few weeks is, you know, I'm completely against this idea of equality of outcome. It's just right. not going to happen. It's not in the cards. We're all very different. Um, and I like equality before the law, these sort of basic human dignity, all made in the image and likeness of God. But then the common phrase you're thrown around is equality of opportunity, which yeah. seems nice to it me. It sounds good. But to me, I more want like abundance or super abundance of opportunity, like as much opportunity as we can possibly create, but it probably won't be equally distributed. It'll be like we're just creating so much to go ahead, go for it. Like, these are all your opportunities. And to me, the idea of trying to create equal opportunities, let alone outcomes, there's such a mix, as you just said. Who are your friends? Who are your peer groups? What What is your genetic makeup? What is your temperament? All these things. And I'd imagine that comes in so much with parenting. It's like, okay, yeah, we missed that opportunity, mm -hmm. but another one will pop up. And it's not about necessarily finding the equal opportunity for, say, like all your six kids. It's like, no, what's the best opportunities we can get? That's to exactly one? right. And it's so easy to fall into that. No matter how many kids you have, but especially, you know, if you have a few kids, it's very easy to, more than one kid, right, it's very easy to fall into, well, I have to treat them equally. Well, you know, giving them equal opportunities in that same way, that doesn't really make sense. It's not, <laughs> right? It's, they're, they're going to have such different interests, such different aptitudes, you really have to relax. Right. Relax. And then the devil's in the details, as always. I mean, and it, I love that it's an ongoing process. It's not like, these are the rules to parenting and this forever how it is. It's like, well, more... You got to figure it out, and but I love your message at the end of the day. Relax, uh, the the kids are going to be all right as long as you provide the basics, right? And uh, and enjoy your time with the kids, exactly, and the, let them enjoy their time with you. Well, I love and uh, that the fact that your son remembers eating KFC, right, <laughs> as opposed to everything else you did, is just fantastic to me. And well, and it does remind me that, uh, and I've heard this from plenty of parents that you know the parents' job is to teach and provide and protect all this stuff, but the kids often are the ones that end up teaching the parents even more. Just I think that's right. So with that, uh, Stephen Miller. I appreciate you being on the show tonight. Thank you, Joey. And I appreciate you folks for listening. I'll be back tomorrow night with uh, Charlotte Meadows and be talking about education and charter schools and her uh, run for the state house and also a little of her own history. We go waves back and should be a good personal conversation.